So let's get into the Word, and uh, we are in the book of Acts. And if we're going through the book of Acts right now, the book of Acts is the second half of the Gospel of Luke. And I love that it's called the book of Acts. Now, Luke didn't name it Acts. It's just because a long time ago, some guys looked back and they said, well, this is kind of like the Acts of the Apostles, what they did. But I think that's a lousy way of putting it. It's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit, that God is at work in the world. It's not not the book of Sits. It's not the book of Waits. It's not the book of Thinks. It's the book of Acts. God is an active God, and He's working in our world. And so we're going through this this amazing work. How did the gospel start with just 12 guys hiding in a room to becoming all the way throughout the globe? How did that happen? What is the story of the church? How is God transforming lives? This is the story. And because it's kind of a big, I know that I love history, but I know that not everybody does. So we are doing the beginning, we're doing Acts in three different big sections. Part one, Acts chapter one through nine, which really is talking about God's kingdom, how it comes to this earth. That's what we're studying right now. Each week we're hitting a chapter. This is how we're doing it. We're doing exegetical. We're going to go, I'll give you a brief summary of the chapter. Then we're going to go look at some application. Right Before we do that, however, we always have a memory verse, a Bible memory verse. And I'm going to, I'm going to back myself all the way up to the very first slide that I have for this, so you get to see all of the cool stuff. Boop, 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 boop. There we go. And then our Bible memory verse for the day is this, Acts 1.8, and this is actually for the entire series. It's called the Great Commission in the, in the book of Acts, right? The Great Commission in Matthew tells us to, to make disciples for Jesus. This tells us the strategy of how we're supposed to do it. Jesus told us this. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you or on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of... See, God told us, Jesus told us, this is what we're to be about. And the book of Acts really begins to show how Christ is fulfilling this commission in and through us. And it's a work that he's continuing to do. And so I would encourage you, since this is what God is doing, is God's act through the church, I would encourage you to take time, memorize that, but think about how it applies in your life. And we'll come back to that later on in the message, because every single week, you'll be amazed how God continues, Scripture continues to drive us back to this. Now, you have your Bibles, so let's please turn them to Acts chapter 5. If you have one of our Bibles, that's on page 760. If you forgot your Bible, you need one, don't worry about it. We've got lots of them in the back there on that bookshelf. You're welcome to use one of ours, and if you need one, keep it, please, our gift to you. Now, as you're turning to Acts chapter 5, there is going to be, I want you to get a little bit of, of uh, context into this. See, in Acts chapter 4, we saw that we had this new boldness that we had in Christ, right? We have the apostles, they, uh, and they use that, that healing, and they bring it to the temple as an opportunity to share the gospel boldly, right? And what is the gospel? Remember, again, it's a new message we received that this is life. It's about Jesus, not about us. That we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And as He transforms us, we become a blessing and transform the world. That's the gospel. So the the apostles were were presenting this new message with boldness. And when they were doing that in the temple, they faced the first level of persecution. And there was resistance there, right? And and it came through authority, it came through power, it came through conflict. The same three things the world has always used to try to silence those it doesn't want to hear. And yet, the apostles respond to that, and we read in chapter 4, with this new boldness that they have. See, so they, they're able to continue to speak the gospel and not be silenced because when instead of being intimidated by an authority, they say, we work for a higher authority. 
Instead of being intimidated by the show of power, they're reminded that they've shown a greater power, and God is working in them and through them a much greater power. And therefore, they were not going to be intimidated by the conflict because God has overcome the conflict. He has overcome this world. And so there was a boldness that they have and we have in Christ to share this gospel. And as a result of that, we read at the end of chapter 4 that the church was transformed. They prayed for boldness, the place was shaken, and God did a miraculous work. He didn't overthrow the authorities in the temple that were persecuting them. Instead, he overthrew the idols in their heart, and they see the church now operating in an entirely different way. The church now, we read about it, it says that they started acting crazy, like they were selling their property to give the money to the people who needed help. That they counted nothing that they had more valuable than the people that were part of this new community. It says that God was so at work amongst them that there was no needy people. That was a pretty amazing thing. That's where we live. That's bold living, isn't it? Well, we find with bold living that sometimes, and oftentimes, always, I would say, people are corrupt. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm corrupt, right? All of us are. Right? You can't find a perfect church because if you go there, you ruin it, right? right? But it doesn't exist because church is filled with people. I mean, even this week, right? I was preaching a couple weeks ago about how to care for and how God's called us to love those that are trusted by the shenanigans, which I was reading, that my heart was filled with mad to the point of despising another human being. And then the Holy Spirit brings conviction. And I did war with him for a little while because I have corruption in here, don't I? And God says, hey, Aaron, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. And I didn't want to. I wanted to throw stones, not love. I don't know if you've ever been there. And the hardest prayer that I had to pray was at night before God would allow me to go to sleep is to pray a prayer of blessing for those that I found what they were doing repulsive. But this is the work of Christ. You see, all of us carry this brokenness that God is at work changing. And we find that 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 corruption has to be checked by the Holy Spirit because when it is not, it does horrible things to the body. Now today's message, we go into chapter 5, begins with corruption and when it starts to seep into the church and and it has to be corrected. This is not a message, by the way, if you're not a a believer, I want to tell you that This is not going to be your warm, fuzzy, seeker-sensitive kind of message. It's not that we want to be offensive. It's not at all. What we're going to do is you get a chance. We're going to pull back the curtain. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is the the consequence and and what what is the truth of our faith and belief? This is heavy stuff that we're going into. For as believers, I will say that God calls us. He beckons us in his word. Like Most of my message, I get to have a lot of fun because God's word is great and he's happy and he's an awesome God and he loves us deeply and all that. There are times that he also says, but he's a serious God and he's a holy God. And we have today example in scripture where we recognize that the Almighty is just that. And he does not appreciate corruption in his body. So what happened was, is that the church was acting loving. People were taking their property and saying, this person is more valuable to me than anything I could ever own. They are my brother or sister in Christ. And how can I possibly say I love somebody if I have the means to help them, but I don't? And so the church was operating in love, and yet there were some who had this corruption inside, as we all do, 
but they didn't surrender it to Christ. They used this as an opportunity to buy themselves some, some popularity in the church. It was a young couple, or I assume young, because I don't read about kids, but they were uh, Ananias and Sapphira, their names. And they had some land. And like everyone else, they went and sold the land. And then they kept some of the money themselves, which they were free to do. But then they went to the church and said, we sold the land and here's all of the money that we got it from. Not of actual true expression of love and concern for somebody else, but as a way of boosting themselves in the eyes of others to manipulate others in the name of Christ. And Jesus was having none of it. Holy Spirit wasn't happy. Somehow Peter finds out about this and he brings Ananias into his, to the, his office and says, how could you have done this wicked thing? You have not sinned against us. You've sinned against God himself. And then God executes the judgment and Ananias falls down dead instantly. Then the young men uh, from the church, they come and they take Ananias up and they go and they bury him. A few hours later, his wife, Sapphira, comes in. And uh, Peter says to, to Sapphira, he says, hey, listen, is this the amount? He's giving her a chance. Is this really the amount that you sold your property for? And she said, yep, that's it, every penny. Peter says, that's unfortunate. He said, the feet of the men who buried your husband are right at the door, and they will bury you too. And she falls down and dies, and they bury her. That's a hard lesson, isn't it? See, what happened then after this is that there was fear that went amongst the congregation, as you can imagine, and not just the congregation, because people heard about what had just happened. And they realized that God was now at work in the church, that God has, that the church was a holy thing, and He was at work in it, and the church had been treated not holy, and so maybe it's not just a club, maybe it's something more important. And so all of a sudden, they started to do this introspection, they were like, whoa, we need to be careful. And the people then, they, uh, they, they continue to worship in the temple, but with a different sense of reverence. They recognize that a holy God, a just God, and also a merciful God was, was in Christ, but He's still merciful, but He's also powerful and just and holy and must be treated that way. And so more and more people, as they met in the temple, uh, began to come to faith in the midst of this. As God purified the church, He increased its evangelism. He kept it from corruption. And let's all say we, we don't like corruption, right? So He keeps the church free from corruption, and then it draws more people. As a result of that, you have these, uh, those that were in power in the temple. Remember last week, they went and, and uh, arrested uh, Peter and John and warned them, don't you talk about Jesus? Now, I misspoke last week because I said there was this guy named Gamaliel who, who backed up. Well, actually, that's the damage, that's the danger of doing uh, my sermons a couple months out is, and also reading it in the text in chapter 5. They get arrested again. See, last week they just got arrested and they didn't know what to do with the apostles, so they just warned them. They said, don't you talk about Jesus. And the apostles said, uh, we've got to obey God other than you. And then they continue to preach. And then God helps them through the Sodom, through the Sodom, through this Ananias' fire thing. Right? He does that. And now they're preaching in the temple again. And everyone knows that God's at work amongst them because the Ananias of fire, right? that God's at work here. And so the, the uh, temple priests, they get upset by this. 
and those that are in power, and they're jealous, and so they arrest the apostles, all of them this time. And they bring them back in before them, and they say, didn't we warn you to not talk about Jesus? And so they lock them up in prison. And so you have the apostles locked up in prison, and they're going to keep them there, and the next day they're going to have a trial, and hopefully the next day they're going to have an execution. This is probably the thought, right? And so that night, the apostles are in prison, and God does a miracle. He opens up the prison, and the apostles get set free. They just walk out of the prison. And where do they go? Do they run away? Oh, no. God says, go back to the temple and continue to share the good news. And so that's where they go. The next morning, we read that the, that the high priests and all those, they, they say, well, let's go get those apostles, bring them out. We're going to have their, their court date today. And they go to the prison, and they find the prison. Everything looks normal, right? The prison doors are all locked. The prison guards are on the outside. Everything is as it should be. But they open up the prison cell door, and guess who's not there? The apostles, they're gone. And they're like, this was a crazy magic trick. How did it happen? They don't know. They're befuzzled. And then some guy comes up to them and says, listen, I don't know how they got out, but I know where they are. They're in the temple, and they're preaching. And this made those authorities just mad, like madder than a hornet's nest has been kicked, right? They were just angry. They're like, oh, we locked you in prison. We told you not to speak. And where are you? You're right in the same place we told you not to preach and preach in the way you told you not to. Uh, so they go out, and they have to go arrest them gently because they didn't want to be... They didn't want the crowds to go become a mob against them. So they gently arrest them, and they bring them back into trial, and they said, shame on you. We told you not to preach, and now you're preaching. Now everybody knows about Jesus, and they all think that we're guilty for killing him. And then Peter uses the opportunity and says, well, we have to obey God rather than you. We keep telling you that. How many times you have to hear it, but you can hear it again. We're obeying God, not you. And by the way, you did kill Jesus, but God raised him from the dead, and we're going to continue to speak about him a sense of, of authority that uh, they were able to preach to, that was amazing. That's the story of Acts 5. So now we have this, uh, the result of Acts 5, by the way, is that all the people in the church, they respect the church. Right? They're like, wow, uh, the church is something amazing. Now, in Acts 5, we find that, like in Acts 4, we have a new boldness. Acts 5, we gain a new authority in Christ. So if we're going to focus in on this new authority that we've been given. And I want you to understand, there's, if there's a new authority, there was an old authority, right? Who was the old authority? Well, it was the temple, right? It was, it was the priests. It was the priestly system. Who set up the priests? God. God authorized the priests. Do you understand? This was the priestly institution was God's authority. They were able to speak with authority and operate under God's authority. That's why, look, when the... When the, when the God first instituted the, the priesthood, right? He said, you've got to do everything in this way. And if you don't do it in this way, then watch out, right? That's why when, when Aaron and his sons, when they were first learning how to work in the tabernacle, right? And God said, the priests are to, to offer a fire in this way, and the wrong guys try to offer the fire in the wrong way. What happened to them? They got burnt up, right? God brought capital punishment for the sake of purity in his religious institution. God set up the temple, right? God set up the old covenant, the priestly covenant. So this was the old authority, were the priests. By God's command, we have an entire book called Leviticus in the Old Testament where God authorizes the priests to operate as priests. 
And therefore, when the high priests and the other priests tell the apostles, don't talk about Jesus, they were operating what they thought under God's authority. And you got to understand that if you were a Jew at that time, and you see the apostles telling the priests, no, you don't have the authority, how that would mess with your head. Because you were saying, you are dis- if I was a normal Jew, I would be looking at the apostles and saying, you are disobeying the priests who are operating under God's authority. You are disobeying God. The old authority were the priests. And in this chapter, you see a huge transition where the authority structure has shifted. And we cannot miss that. Because we do so at our own peril. The old authority, the priests had the moral authority. They were able to represent God and His law. They said this is morally right and morally wrong. The priest's job was to do the sacrificial system to make sure that everybody was atoned for in the right way, but also to preach that is morally right and morally wrong. God had given that job and authority to do that to the Levitical priesthood. And then through them, through each of the families and each of of the synagogues. So each family was to teach their children, had the authority to teach as long as it was in Scripture, what is right and wrong. And so therefore, to not operate through the the, the, the synagogue, to not operate through the temple system, you were operating outside of God's authority. And it wasn't good for the people of Israel who tried that. But here in this chapter, we find that the authority is different. That there's a new moral authority that God has given to the church. That's the very first authority he's given. Verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, A man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you also received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to human beings, but to God. Ananias had lied to whom? The church. Brought the money to the church, which, by the way, church is the congregation, is us. Together. And he says here, when you lie to the church, it wasn't just lying to the church, you were lying to God. That is a different thing entirely, isn't it? Like, if I'm part of, you know, uh, I get to speak at the FCA this week, by the way, for the high school. Pray for me, because I get to share the gospel with high schoolers. I'm so excited. But if I lie to FCA, I'm not lying to God. I'm lying to the FCA, and I won't do that. But I'm lying to a group. I'm lying to people, and that's bad. That's, That's a sin. That's an awful thing. But if I lie to the church, I am lying to God. Do you see the difference? There's a consequence to this. There's a holiness to church. It is not like anything else. God has granted the church a moral authority to speak for Him. And it's not just me. I am not the church. We are the church. We understand. We cannot have corruption here. That when, how we act here is, is different. The church is holy, which means different, set apart, not like anything else. It is not to be treated as common. And Ananias and Sapphira treated the church as it was just another social club, another group to gain status in. And really, from a human perspective, we look at their crime, and don't we kind of look at that and think, maybe their money, why do you get so mad that they kept back a portion of it? It wasn't that they kept back a portion, it's that they lied. 
and that they were using this to create to gain some type of power. They were playing politics in his body, and God was not about that. This is a holy space. The church is different. It operates with a moral authority. How we treat the church is exactly how we treat Christ. He calls it his body. How we love the church is how we love Christ. He calls it his bride. The church should not be trifled with. It's bigger than us. It's not about us. It must be treated as special and with the reverence that it deserves. God showed the high reverence that he had for the church by enacting the exact same penalty that he enacted against against people who violated holy spaces in the past. If you were not ritually clean and you walked into the Holy of Holies, capital punishment. God would strike you dead. That's why the high priest wore little bells around his his garments. So that way, if he walked into the Holy of Holies and he wasn't there in the right way at the right time doing the right things, he would die. That's a holy space. Only one person once a year could go there. And if he didn't go in the right way with the right kind of sacrifice, he wasn't welcome. Or there was another time that a man who, who was rightfully, his heart was he was and what happened to the ark? Well, the ark was sliding off the back of a horse and, or a back of a cart, and he reaches out his hand and tries to stop the ark from falling because they weren't carrying it the way God told him to carry it, carry it. So he reaches out to make sure it doesn't fall, and what happens? Struck dead instantly because the ark was holy. It was not meant to be just touched like any other common thing. It was to be treated different. Well, God used that same instant death penalty to show how, how much reverence we must treat the church with. I think we have to understand that the early church got this, that this is not a place for politics. This is not a place for us to to gain, uh, you know, to use influence and all that kind of stuff to, to build myself up. This is not about that. This, the church, is a holy thing. And there are consequences for not treating the church holy. For Ananias Sapphira, God showed and created purity in the church. There was an instant death penalty. But I want you to understand this, that God doesn't just strike us all dead when we bring corruption into his body, but he will bring conviction. How we treat the church matters. Treat it right. The purpose of the death penalty was the purpose of purity. Is there any institution in the world that has zero, that we should have zero tolerance for corruption in? Is here. Think of the damage that has been done And right now we see the Catholic Church and the scandal that's happened there. Let's not pretend that it only happens in the Catholic Church. That type of corruption happens everywhere, right? It is so onerous, it is so wicked, is because it happened in the church. That's why it's caused extra damage. We must be pure here. There must be no corruption here. We must be dedicated to purity here. The result of purity in the church is respect, isn't it? Isn't it interesting to know that if we we represent Christ, that there is a place on this earth that you can go and step away from the human corruption of things? There is a respect that comes from that, but it's respect that is earned, and it begins by understanding that there's a new authority that God has given us, a moral authority, and we have to represent that. We have to recognize it. We also have a different spiritual authority. 
The church doesn't just operate by saying, well, I have this new moral authority. We get to speak to what is morally right and what is morally wrong and what is good, right, to be pure. We have the spiritual power behind that, right? Look at this in verse 12. After this, this whole uh, crazy shenanigan with uh, Ananias and Sapphira, it says, the apostles performed many signs and wonders amongst the people. And all the believers uh, used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, that's in the temple. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Right? All of a sudden, everyone's like, whoa, this is a holy thing. And we're not just going to just lightly join. We're going to treat the church as something special, as it is. And it says, no one else joined, but said, nonetheless, more and more... And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those who were tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Get that, all of them. One of the marks that Jesus was God was the fact that he had performed miracles, right? Can you just heal a sick person? No, I can't just be healed. I... God isn't giving me that gift, right? But Jesus could just do it. Anything he wanted. He could raise people from the dead. He did that. He could tell people what was in their hearts, right? He could heal people from distance. He didn't even have to touch them, right? It was one of the evidence that Jesus was from God. Now that Jesus had died and raised again, one of the evidence is that he was real. The apostles now had the same type of ability. It was a proof to the church that, that God has endorsed them. So much so that he was able to heal the sick, raise the, I mean, they were eventually raised dead, but also they were able to just um, cast out demons, which I think is the biggest sign of authority. If you ever want to cast out a demon, don't do it if you're going to do it on your own authority, because the demon doesn't care about what you have to say, but has a lot to care about who Jesus is. And how do we know that? Well, the book of Acts talks about there was a, some people that had, were casting out demons. They were, they were priests sons of this great this priest, and, and uh, they were saying, well, people can cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And so they went to a, the demon and said, be gone in the name of Jesus. And the demon's like, I don't know you. I know Peter. I know Jesus. I know Peter. I know John. But I don't know you. And then that demon comes unglued on them and starts beating them senseless, and they run out naked and beaten, and it was a bad deal for them. You don't mess with demons, but what gave the apostles the authority just to cast out all the demons? Well, they were operating in Jesus' spiritual authority. They're operating as the church. They're operating in the way that, and as whom and with whom God told them to operate. And so God's spiritual power was behind them and was in them. And because of that, the church didn't meet in secret and in hiding. The church met in the temple, the very same place where they were trying to persecute them. The church met with authority because they had the right to meet. They were operating under God's spiritual authority. They were also met with and they healed with God's authority. Now, here's the amazing thing. The church also enjoyed the authority, the spiritual power of God that God was transforming them. What's the gospel again? This is life. It's about Jesus, not about you. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior. And as He transforms us from the inside, we bless and transform the world. Well, these disciples were being transformed. These disciples of Jesus, not just the apostles, all of them were being changed. They were, they were showing generosity in their life. They were showing compassion that they didn't have before. And the very fact that they were selling their property and all that kind of stuff in their life showed evidence of change. God's spiritual authority, He was transforming them from the inside. Spiritual change. Only God can do that. And the church is the place that God does works in people's hearts. Also, we find that 
the church received God's religious authority. And this is a big deal because remember, the temple and the priesthood were God's idea. He came up with that. That was God. So to say we're, we're moving away from that is no small thing. But we find that God now says there's a different religious authority fulfilled. And now there is a new covenant. They weren't being replaced. All right, we're being grafted in to, to this great faith. But the authority structure, where does it begin? God said the temple and the sacrificial system had served its purpose. Now there is a new priesthood. We are grafted into that priesthood. There's a new way to exist. There's a new authority structure that God has set up. Verse 18, if you join me there, it says, well, I'll start in 17. It says, The high priests and the associates who were the members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy, and they arrested the apostles and put them into public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people about this new life. The apostles were legally arrested by God's appointed authority. Normally, then, God would back that up, wouldn't you think? The priests attempted, uh, arrested the apostles on the temple mount for disobeying the priests. The priests had the authority of God. Everyone at this point would say, yes, they had the authority of God to arrest the apostles. The apostles would be in the wrong if they were operating under their own authority. But God demonstrates that the apostles were now operating as the authority. And how does he do that? Well, it says during the night, God opened up the, the, the prison and let them free. He overrode the judgment against them. And he says, go back out there and preach. He gives them a new authority. In the New Testament, we find this structure, the new authority that God gives the church. It now begins to operate as God's religious authority. See, God, the church, this is not our idea, by the way. I don't know if you understand, like, why we are set up the way we're set up, that we have pastors, we have elders, like, why we have deacons and deaconesses. Why do we have, why is the church structured that way, that you're ministers, that each one of us has work to do? Why are we structured that way? Did we come up with this? This was God's idea. This is God's plan. This is God's, he said, I'm working in my church through my church. And so the church is holy this way and operates as his religious authority, just as the priesthood did in the Old Covenant. You now just need to be those priests. Amazing. And so we have this religious authority that God says, no, you now have the right to go preach. And when the high priests and others say, why are you preaching? We told you not to. The apostles could say to them, straight-faced and with good conscience, we are obeying God, not you. The authority, when they have this change, the apostles don't appeal to themselves saying, well, we were the followers of Jesus, that's why, or we don't like what you have to say. That's not why they said it. It wasn't up to them whether who they liked or who they wanted to follow. It was the fact that who did God set in authority? So when the apostles are asked, why can you do this? They say, we're following God, right? It is the Holy Spirit is the one who is empowering us and is the one who's giving evidence that this is the new authority. To understand... This chapter is all about authority. It is the shift that allows us as a church to start in Jerusalem and then go to Judea and Samaria, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That God has changed the authority structure. How does that apply? 
Well, there's one other there's thing that we need to see is the church first operates under God's moral authority. Okay? This is one thing we have to understand. This is not our ethics. Sometimes I preach things that offend people. I, sometimes I preach things that offend me because I'm not perfect yet. Okay? There are things in Scripture that I don't fully understand why God says they're the way they are. But that's the way they are. This is not a social club where we get to vote and choose what we say is right and wrong. This is God's church. This is Christ's church. And if we present something as moral, it had better match up to what God says is moral. We cannot allow ourselves to bring corruption into the body. Do we understand? It's not just for me, my preaching. It's why when I, when I, when I do my sermons and I, I do them a long time out, so I spend a lot of time in the Word and I test these things and I, and I pray for them and I ask others sometimes to even read my things and say, am I right here? Right? We want to make sure that we're preaching truth because this is truth, not this. My heart will lead me astray, but the truth will not. This is God's church and he tells us, you have authority to preach morality. We have the responsibility to make sure the morality we preach is from him. But it's not just me. Do you understand that you are his messengers? If you take a moral stand, brother or sister in Christ, that is in contradiction to God's word, you do so at your own peril. You are bringing corruption as a member of the church into the church. Like me, this last couple days, as I struggled with hatred and disgust, I had to lay that down. I had to say, God, I do not love my enemy, but you told me to fight even though I don't understand it right now, but it is right. We have an obligation as a church to stand on the Word of God, not just me, us. We are the church. Which is why Jesus said, when you make disciples, you just don't go baptizing people and leave them. He says, then teach them to obey everything he commanded. He's not joking. Moral purity is important. Not moral perfection, but purity. An agreement with what God says is true is actually true. What God says is right is actually right. That what he calls sin is we actually agree with him. And we say, God, we will agree that this is sin. That we agree with God. It's not checking our brains at the door. It's checking your knee to the floor and saying, God, you are in control. You are my Savior and my King. And until I fully understand it, that I'm going to obey you and transform me until I get it. This is the obligation and requirement of a follower of Jesus. I can't sugarcoat that for you. And I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, that you're not here to listen to me tell you what I think is right and wrong, because if I gather, we will walk in truth and light and purity. And this is the requirement. It's the holiness that God demands of his church. The church is a holy place and must be treated as such. Next thing we understand is the church operates by God's spiritual authority. This is not a game. We understand. You're not here because you just like me. If you're here for that reason, let me give you a better reason. You're here because God saved you by his grace through your faith in Jesus Christ. And as he transforms you, you're going to transform and be a blessing to this world. That is his plan. You are here because he's called you to be here. He says, you are part of my family. Church means gathering, by the way. If you are a believer outside of the church, you are not church. Gather. It's what he's called us to do. It's what he's called us to be. Together. This is why this is priority. 
This is not some other club. This is not some other thing that we do. This is life. This is God's work, and this is holy. You are holy and a part of it. So treat it that way. We operate by God's spiritual authority. If you want to have life transformation, it happens as the church and in the church. How powerful is that? Now, here's the cool thing. God empowers the church. He's the one who's changing you from the inside out. That happens here, and we see it all the time. But God also protects the church. Look what happened to the apostles. They got arrested by, at that time, seemed like a very legitimate authority, and God was even to free them from prison on the Temple Mount. God will protect us. We don't have to be intimidated by those who say, be silenced because of you. We don't have to be intimidated by that. God will protect his church. He is the king. We have to obey Christ, not the world. So speak truth. Be a witness. Live that truth. And God can free you from the prison, but he also can allow you to be whipped. Just like the apostles were, they were beaten and they were sent free. And what did they do? They praised God, saying, thank you for the opportunity of suffering for your name. So whether God frees us from the consequences of wicked people or he allows us to endure it, either way, he is at work in our lives creating testimony. We trust him in his protection. And at this, we recognize the church is invincible. You cannot stop this. The church is not operated and run by some smooth marketing scheme. It's not that we just have a nice marketing message. It's not just that we're friendly or have good donuts. It's not what's going to save the world. Jesus is at work in you. Do you understand that he is at work? He's not joking. God's Holy Spirit, if you are a believer, his Holy Spirit is in you and will bring fruit. Where there was no love, you will find love. Where there was no joy, you will find joy. Where there was no patience, you will find patience. Where there was no peace, you will have peace. This is the mark of Christ in you, the transformation. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you came from. Now you're part of the church, and transformation is alive in you. As he transforms you from the inside, you will be a blessing to the world. That's what he's doing. And so we do lots of ministries and we try to organize and things well and smart. But I'll tell you this, the future of the church and the safety of the church and the success of the church does not rest on our shoulders. It rests on the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit within it, which is why there is no place that the church can be wiped out. Even today in China, where it is illegal to represent the name of Jesus, there are more Christians than there are Americans in our own country. Isn't that amazing? The work of Christ, the work of the church is unstoppable because it is a work of God in this world changing people from death to life. You can never have enough darkness to squelch the light. You are the light. We also see that the church operates now as God's religious authority. This, this structure, this is how God set up his church to act. It says have pastors and elders. That's to have some authority, to have some accountability. You're supposed to have deacons and deaconesses to serve. This is what it says in Scripture, how God organizes His church, that He says that everybody is a minister who has been equipped by God to serve. This is His structure, where the greatest have to be the first servant. When if I would call myself a lead pastor, that I'm the lead in this, I will serve every one of you for you, every week. I care for you. I try to help encourage you in, in righteousness and truth. I, I spend time to make sure that you're taught good spiritual teaching. I will lay down my life for you because I get to be the privilege of serving you most. You have your elders who serve you also. 
who care for your needs, who try to bring some type of leadership and direction. We need to pray for them and make sure that these men, like me, do not allow corruption into this body. We, we pray for their wives and their families as well, that God is at work amongst us so we can serve you well. And for our deacons and our deaconesses who are given opportunity to take leadership in areas of, of ministry, not to be a, a, a title that they get to wear and say, I'm a deacon, you know, follow me. But as an area saying, let me do my work so I can serve you, the work of Christ, so that you can be unleashed in this community to be agents of light and truth. God is at work in the church, and he said, this is my religious authority. This is how we structured it. To treat it as anything less than is to treat something holy of God as anything, something less than holy. And I think the story of Ananias Sapphira warns us, let us be careful not to call the holy things of God common. There's one more thing that we see, though, is the church operates under this rational authority. Gamaliel, who I told you wrong last week, was at a different trial. He was this week. He was a wise man. And after the apostles were brought in and, and, and they realized that they, they had this new authority and they couldn't stop them, the, the high priests and others, they were getting angry and they were frustrated. And what they were probably going to do is what they were going to do what they did to Jesus. is going to kill these guys. And Gamaliel saw this and, and he knew the story of Jesus. He was, he was a leader in Israel for a long time and he was well respected. He would have known the, the ministry of Jesus. He would have probably heard him firsthand himself several times. He was there when they decided to kill Jesus. Part of that decision. That's part of being in the Sanhedrin. Right? He was there when, when uh, Jesus died. At least he would have known about it. He was in Jerusalem. He was there when Jesus rose again. He knew that the tomb was empty. He was there at Pentecost 50 days later and was well understood what was happening in the nation. Right? He was aware of Ananias and Sapphira. And the holiness of the people would have been like, whoa, we can't mess with this group. God is at work there. He would have been very aware that people were bringing out demon-possessed folks and those that were sick, and even Peter's shadow crossing across them would heal them. He was well aware of all of this. And so Gamaliel says this. He says, listen, if this is from God, if this movement is from God, well then, fighting uh, against God. But if it's not from God, then it's not going to last anyway. And he gives some examples historically how other groups have claimed to be from God and eventually fallen apart. And the people, the high priest said, you know what, that's rationally true. And so they let the apostles go. They beat them, but they let them go. I'll tell you this. The church operates with a rational authority. First rational authority is this. We have evidence from the scriptures. We have, what, 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that were fulfilled to the, to the T Hundreds of years before Jesus came, I mean, crazy things about the city that he'd be born in, the family he'd be born in, how he would die, crazy things. We see that there is something more than just humanity into this, that Jesus really is the Messiah. We have the evidence of the resurrection, which is enormous. But we also have this. We have the evidence of changed life. It says in Revelation that we're going to overcome. How? By the blood of the Lamb. That's the work of Jesus. And the word of our testimony, that's Christ in you. Your testimony does not end when you become a Christian, it begins. The evidence of Christ in you, because that's something your neighbors and your friends, they're not going to be able to argue against. When they see a person who wasn't loving is now more loving, 
A person who was, who was not kind is more kind. A person that was filled with anxiety is now a person who's growing into a person of peace. When they see Christ's transformation in you, that's a pretty rational thing to say, you know what? I see this person, God is changing them. That's evidence enough for me. And that's the greatest evidence that we can provide this world. We operate with a rational authority. If you want to grow in Christ, you've got to be in the church. That's the way Christ works. It is his authority. It's his moral authority. It's his religious authority. His spiritual authority works here. If you're looking for transformation, it is in this community. And this, this isn't the only one in Estes Park, by the way. We're part of a great church. And God is doing amazing things. So let God work in you. How do you take those next steps? How do you follow this new authority? If you have your connection cards, I have some next steps. First thing that you might want to do this week is this. Memorize Acts 1.8. Why? As you memorize Scripture, don't just memorize the words because this is the Word of God. It's meant for us to be applied and to know. If you say, you know what, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you that God is not joking, memorize that. What is the power that God is giving you and gifted you as the Holy Spirit has come upon you? Right? And maybe it's the fruits of the Holy Spirit, peace and joy and love and patience, kindness, good, all those things. Take account of your life and say, God, how are you working? Where is the power? Because he's granted you power to do his work. You will be his witnesses. That's what he said. A witness is one who testifies. We're going to find out in another couple of weeks with the first martyr, which actually means testimony or witness. What does it mean to be a witness in this world? How do we testify? But you have a witness. You will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, even in your own hometown. Be praying this week as you memorize this. Ask God, invite this to be true in your life. Or maybe what you want to do this week is read Acts chapters 4 through 5. If you want to see how a church, the church responds to opposition, this is a great passage. It's how the church began to deal with opposition. And it's not that we formed an army. We overcame wickedness in a whole new way, with a whole new authority. And so if you want to read about that, how does the church respond in opposition? I think this is very pertinent for today. You want to read that passage this week. Maybe that's where you begin. Or maybe what you're going to do is pray for three. What is that? Throughout this entire series, I've been encouraging you to this. We are God's light in this dark world. But the people that are dark are not our enemy. They are people who live in darkness, just like we did at one point. Those people have names. They're not just numbers out there. It's not just some ethereal darkness is out there. You know people, and do you love them enough to pray for them? I'm encouraging you for the next couple weeks to pray for them by name. And I even created a Zach, actually, created a, a, a little tool for you. And then the back of the seat and pockets in front of you, it says, who will I invest invite in? It's got a place for three names. I invite you every single day, be praying for somebody. You pray that God will prepare their heart to receive the gospel. Pray that God will empower you or equip you to share the gospel in a good way. And that he'll give you the courage to do it when the time comes. Or that he'll bring somebody else who will do it. Right? Pray for those people. If you want to do that, this would be your commitment. And you know, on the back, there's all Christ. There's some things there we've, we've put there for you. Maybe that's what you do. Or how about this? Maybe you need to attend a membership class. Maybe even part of our church for a few months. You've been coming for a few months and all this. I'll tell you what, there's a difference between a tender and a member. And people say church membership is not biblical. I disagree. How on earth are you supposed to, I think it's implied. I think everybody who's part of the church is a member of the church. Are you in Christ? How are we supposed to bring biblical accountability to you if, we don't, if you're just a regular tender? We don't even know you. 
I'll challenge you this. If you want to know what our church is about, how do we work, if you want to be part of this, I encourage you, join us. And when is it? Well, I'll tell you what, it is not October 10th to the 12th because it's not that big of a class. It is just October 12th. It's like two and a half hours, three hours. We have lunch. We're friendly. We try to do these often enough that usually church will help you take those steps then. Or maybe there's something else that you need to do. Something the Holy Spirit's uh, urging on your heart. Certainly make that commitment. We will join you this week as we support you. Okay. And the second, we're going to uh, make sure you write your, off, your uh, connection cards, have your uh, prayer requests on there. If you have your offering, this is a great time to prepare that. In a minute, we're going to take our offering. And if you wouldn't mind putting your offering in the envelopes, our, our treasurers asked for that. They said it makes their lives so much easier. So we can love them that way. Those are in the seat front pockets as well for you. And the second, we're going to take our offering. We also want to take our connection cards. Drop those in there and make that an offering of, of your heart to God. Now, let's pray for those as we, uh, as we take those. And then we'll have the worship team come up and then close us out with a, a good word of worship. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for you, your love, your kindness, your goodness, your mercy, and Father, also the fact that you are a holy God. Lord, I pray that you would help work in this church and through this church. Keep us holy and right. I pray for our leadership, Lord, that you would make sure that our hearts are set in the right place, that we're not bringing corruption. God, that you would direct us and guide us in your truth and wisdom. Father, if there are areas in our life where we are off Uh, from what your word says is truth, and correct us to that, Lord. We want to be agents that represent you right and well. Father, I pray for our congregation. Help us to live up to the great calling that you've given us as your priests, as your ambassadors in this world, as your ministers. Father, empower each of those here through your Holy Spirit that you've authorized and empowered with your authority to minister your truth and life and healing and love in this community. Work in them and through them. Father, I pray for the commitments that we've each made today. Help us to keep those in a way that draws us closer to you and your heart. Father, I pray for our tithes and our offerings that we get to give back out of obedience but also out of gratitude for who you are and of love for one another. Would you please, Father, bless those, multiply them, and use them to build your kingdom in us and through us and for your glory. We pray all of this in the beautiful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.